Captain Black, the space pirate, sat on a king-sized hotel bed in Thailand and watched for his next prize. The name on his real passport was David Schwartz, but it was Captain Black, the space pirate, who had five fan sites on the web and at least as many highly secure law enforcement sites devoted to tracking him. He was the absolute gold-anodized titanium pinnacle of the techno-badass pyramid. He was twenty-eight years old. On his laptop screen, he saw a tiny bright dot rising above Mari Smithii on the moon, a booster carrying four tons of helium-3, a treasure ship worth two billion Swiss francs on the spot market. It was a Westinghouse cargo from the Japanese Indian American base at Babcock Crater, on course for the Palmyra Atoll drop zone. Ship home, me hearties, David whooped. His pirate ship lurked at the L-1 libration point, balanced between Earth and Moon. Officially, it was a lunar resource satellite, which was true in its own way, and the owner of record was a perfectly legal company incorporated in Eritrea. David uplinked it through a commercial antenna farm in northern Australia and set up a burn that would match speeds with the helium payload just after it finished climbing up from the moon and began falling toward the earth. Having done that, Captain Black the space pirate went out for lunch. He was currently commanding his pirate sloop from the Shangri-La Hotel in Bangkok. It had good network connections, a nice restaurant, and an abundant supply of western women looking for a little adventure on vacation. David ate grilled squid with his pad open on the tabletop, reading updates on the progress of his pirate ship. He had a nice coffee with condensed milk and introduced himself to a pair of leggy tanned women from Australia, but didn't get a phone number from either of them. Thirteen hours later, the helium treasure ship had climbed to within fifty kilometers of his pirate satellite, and Captain Black was in full battle gear. He sat propped up in bed on pillows in his hotel room, wearing only shorts, a pair of VR goggles, and a pair of white gloves so his computer could see his hand gestures clearly. The system was running a really cool interface that used images from his favorite pirate shooter game. The helium payload was represented by a galleon flying the Westinghouse flag, and he was on the deck of a pirate sloop with guns, loyal crew, and a big-spoked ship's wheel all available at the touch of a gloved hand. He had told his backers the setup was essential for fast reactions in a crisis, but in fact, he mostly used it to play games. Testing, testing, he said over the voice mic. You there, Barnacle Bill? That got tiresome a long time ago, said Bill Benedict's voice in David's earpiece. Benedict wasn't his real last name either. Bill was Captain Black's co-pilot, working from an undisclosed location, which David had pinpointed shortly after they first teamed up. David didn't really need a co-pilot, but Benedict was his connection to the people backing this venture. On his first two pirate exploits, David had been hired help, working for a flat fee that was generous but not spectacular. This time, he'd leveraged his reputation into a share of the profits. When this voyage was done, his scattered bank accounts would have enough zeros to keep David living in first-class hotel rooms for the next three or four decades. Ahoy, said David, crowd on the canvas. The helium payload was practically crawling now, at the top of its long climb up from the moon, just before going over the hump and falling to earth. Its velocity was a miserable two meters per second, about as fast as a car in a traffic jam. 
His own vehicle could go from zero to sixty in twenty seconds. He used up half the sat's remaining fuel to match velocities with the helium payload. Barnacle Bill, better call up the lawyers and liquidate. This was the same as running up the Jolly Roger. Until that moment, if the Americans, the Japanese, or the Indians tried to intercept his pirate vehicle, the maneuver would be a hostile act against a sovereign nation in international space. There was a sizable block of countries in the UN that would happily condemn that sort of behavior. By liquidating the shell company, he was revealing himself as a rogue entity. Fair game. His deniable black ops government patrons would be shocked, shocked to learn of this criminal activity. Anyone investigating the newly defunct rogue entity company would find that it owned nothing but a post office box in Djibouti and an empty bank account.